I'm Peyton. This is the Rhizomatic Reader Podcast. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Caitlin Harrison on Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. You can find the shorter, edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. A note for today's listeners, this episode does contain some curse words. Hello, you can hear me? I can hear you, Paul. Oh my gosh. Hello. I know. Hi. How are you? I am excited and having some technical difficulties. I might need to move move rooms in my house so that I can have a more trustworthy internet connection. Yeah, totally understandable. Love the internet connectivity issues. If you have to do yeah. that, just let me know. It's totally okay. fine. I think, I think I would like to go ahead and proactively do that. We've been trying to move. Anyway. Hope that this is a sustainable connection. Well, if it's not, if it goes out, you know, you'll come back. I'll pause the recording, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's going to work. Okay. If you freeze up, if I freeze up, which happens sometimes, just stay on the line because sometimes my internet too also get funky, you know? Okay. Sounds good. This is how it is in the age of the COVID, but also when we're in yeah. two different, you know, countries. Yes. Two different continents. Hi, we friend. We are. Hi, friend. It's so nice to be with you. This it's is so really, wonderful. I'm excited. I am too. I feel really, really honored that you invited me to participate in this. Well, not only did I invite you, but, you know, you're the first person. You're the first episode, right? Oh, my God. I mean, the pilot is out last night but the um you're the first conversation so you're kind of helping me learn this as well as you've helped me learn so many things in life likewise paul i mean we really i was the book that you selected it really took me back to our time in uh minneapolis like especially the year that we lived together in so many ways, in ways that I hope will kind of come up. Um, so I really appreciate you being here. I've got all of the notes that you've submitted about things you want to talk about, some of which overlapped with things I wanted to talk about. I've got things I want to talk about, but really it's just free flowing. Um, yeah. What'll end up happening is after the conversation is over today, I'll take our big audio file and I'll try to reduce it down to about probably between a 40 and 50 minute uh, conversation with kind of highlights. And then I saw that you said you're okay with posting the unedited version as well. So I'll post that for people who maybe want to like dive more into the book. I'll do show notes. I'll make the social media campaign um, and I'll write a blog post about the conversation that we had. So um, you are be, amazing. <laughs> it'll be like all over the place. Well, this has been a long time coming. I've been wanting to do this. And I'm like, 
really, really excited about uh, what the plan is and how this is supposed to work. I don't know if you know how it's supposed to work yet or not, but it's pretty exciting uh, what's going on here. So how are you? I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm a little bit nervous. And admittedly, also, in choosing, I have to admit that in choosing the four things I wanted to talk, I mean, there were so many things I know. that I found, I mean, I found it really difficult and admittedly, because I wanted to make sure I got it to you in a reasonable time frame. I don't remember which four things I put on the Google form. Oh, yeah. No, that's fine. That's totally fine. Do you want me to send you, I don't know if you have access to your email, do you want me to send you a copy of the four things that you said? Um, I don't. Oh, yes. That would be great. I do okay. have access to my email on another device. Let me, because also, and this will see, this is part of the learning process. Um, yeah. This will also give you some insights into some of the things that I am interested in talking about as well. Yeah. So it's kind of the start of the show notes. So let's give it a second to get there. Cool. I want to know also um, about, you, you know, you said, I'm not sure you know what's going on with this podcast, but it's very exciting. So I would like to hear Here's more the basic. on that front. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's the basic idea. I think you maybe have a little bit of uh, understanding of this just based on uh, what I asked you to submit on the guest form. But I've really, the title, The Rhizomatic Reader, is really about this concept that I studied and learned about in graduate school, which is this, this idea of the rhizome. And the rhizome is a root system that is different than like tree root systems because it spreads out over large areas and it connects and interacts with lots of different species of plants, right? And so it's, it's almost like symbiotic relationships. Hmm. So I'm really interested in people's reading lives to begin with. Like a lot of book podcasts that are out there you know, they talk about the new releases or they maybe are like kind of genre focused, but there's not really in the kind of scheme, as far as I can tell, of podcasts about books and reading, anything that looks specifically at just like, what do everyday people read? Like, what are they interested in? How does it, you know, what is it? So I'm, so I'm always been intrigued by that idea. And then in terms of the rhizomatic approach itself, is that I've, for this first season, I've invited 10 people from various walks of life that I've met over my, you know, many years on the planet, uh, who I think are like, they're either readers or they're people that I find really intriguing, like professionals that I'm like, these people are really fascinating. And so mm -hmm. each of those people has picked a book. And what's going to happen is that I, of course, will read that book have a conversation with them about that text. That's part of what the episode is about. But then I'm asking each person to tell me the names of three people who might be potential future people, right? And so these will be people I don't know in most cases. So mm -hmm. like you submitted the names of these three folks outside, yeah. of, outside of one of those people. I don't think I know any of those people. So yeah. I'll invite them. And then what, what will end up happening is I, we will end up building this kind of like, rhizomatic network of people yeah. 
And it will also be rhizomatic books because I don't, this isn't a podcast that's focused just on like fiction or just on nonfiction or whatever. It's like whatever people want to read. So already in the first season, it's like, we've got this wide range of books that we're going to talk about. And then what I hope will happen long-term is that some of those books that people maybe don't think talk to each other in particular ways might actually come into conversation. Cause one thing I've noticed across my reading life is like, sometimes you're reading, I don't know, you're reading like a piece of science fiction and you realize that it connects to like high cultural theory or something. Right. Or yeah. So I really want to like help Mm. people think about, Oh, if you, if you read this book, right? Like the book that you read today, Pleasure Activism. I mean, this book is so wide ranging that it Mm. touches on like literally a million different things, right? So eventually I hope what I'll be able to do is I'll be able to kind of build like an online map that will let people say like, oh, if I liked this book, what are other books that might be in conversation with it? Yes. So that's the idea. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I love, I it love too. your idea. I'm so I'm so glad you're doing this. It's pretty awesome. And so I had to like, of course, you know, when I thought about the first ten people to invite, I had to invite you, and I had also invited, you know, our friend Catherine, um, um, because you know you all were just so. Your readers, first of all, your intellects, your worldly and you think very differently. And so I was like, I have to bring these people on. Of course, I also have like right over here, I probably could get it. I have right here on my bookshelf, the picture of um, me, you and Catherine at uh, college graduation, the day that you and Catherine graduated. So yeah, so I see y'all every day. So I think about y'all every day. Thank you. I can put myself back on that street corner, hugging you and sobbing. I still have that backpack, by the way. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I know. It's really amazing. So I guess to sort of like get into it, I, I'd really be interested. I'm going to sort of ask everybody this question yeah. as, a, as a kind of first question to just tell me about your reading life. Like, how do you begin to even think about what the history of your reading life is? what it was in the past, what it is now. This can be really anything that you're thinking about in terms of reading. Hmm. Well, my first memory of reading is from when I was not yet two years old. And I remember lying on my back in my crib. I mean, I can put myself there visually and kind of see the horizontal horizontal bars of the cage that young people are often sleeping in and I think I, you know, I was still wearing diapers and I remember holding a book in front of my face and having the thought, if I just stare at these shapes hard enough, Mm. it will start to make sense. Mm -hmm. There was this, you know, really strong drive to master the technology of literacy from a very young age. Um, And And really, sort of, once I was, you know, competent, I just loved reading. It was often a way of kind of um, 
escaping the school scene in a lot of ways. Definitely a form of being able to go into other wor worlds. Um, and, you know, some of the, the strongest reading memories I have are when, you know, as nine, I read a whole series of historical fiction for young readers um, centered around the Holocaust and World War II and the experiences of young people mm. and how absolutely gripping that was as a nine-year-old. And then my reading life, I would say generally speaking, is quite episodic in nature. Yeah. I'll go through periods of time where I am insatiable. I might be reading several books on the go. And then there are periods of time when I'm not reading anything, maybe just letting it all integrate, sink in and making sense of things and contemplating what I've received from various texts. And, um, and then often I'll just look to what speaks to me from a bookshelf. For example, I think about a year ago, I was in the Tate Modern in London and looked over, you know, went into the bookstore because, you know. It's what just, one does. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked over at the bookshelf and all I saw in the corner of the book was, everyone must read this, Bell Hooks. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And it was Living a Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed. And I was <sighs> like, yeah, which could have been another one I would have chosen for us to talk about. Um, but so also I would say that my reading life is really definitely moved by having books speak to me in various ways and me following my internal guidance to pick the book up and read it. Yeah. Oh, Sarah Ahmed. I mean, I just read with one of my colleagues this summer. We were We do a kind of summer pedagogy study where we pick three books to think about like how we can enhance our teaching practices. And, and one of the books that we read this summer was her book on, it's called On Being Included, which is about racism in, in higher education and the way that like institutions of higher learning perpetuate racism by taking up the language of diversity. Yeah. You know, so of course, Sarah Ahmed is just so the way that she's able to spin these ideas is really fascinating to me. Mm. The way yeah. that I so when you when you said this thing about staring at this book when you were a child in the crib and trying to master the technology, what technology were you were you thinking about? The letters, or was it actually like a shape book, or or what was it? It was the I remember seeing the the um the black text on the white page and looking mm -hmm. at the letters and going, I know that these shapes have meaning. Right. And obviously in this situation, I meant to take in visual information from this book and understand it. And I can look at the illustrations and they mean something to me. And obviously I'm putting lots of adult thinking constructs on top of my you know, <laughs> toddler brain, but my felt sense of what that was like was, looking at these shapes and going, I know there's meaning. And if I just look hard enough, I'll be able to get it. So do you actually remember learning how to read? I have a few memories of gaining some awareness of phonics 
at the preschool I attended, we had this circle time and we spent a week exploring each letter of the alphabet. We did that twice, you know, not probably not twice in a year since I don't go to school year round, but, and you know, and I remember C for cabbage, like cabbage for C and having purple cabbage passed around the circle and eating it and having these multi-sensory learning experiences oh. related to each letter of the alphabet. Hmm. Um, and then I have a memory of reading my letter books, which were the series I used to, to read out. And I don't, I can remember kind of the, the size and feeling of them and the texture and the smell. And I remember the experience of being evaluated in my progress and needing to sit alongside my re my teacher and read out loud to her and how I was just terrified. <laughs> yeah. So there was like an assessment. There was like a policing of how well you were able to do this thing called reading. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't, cause I don't remember learning how to read. I just remember like it, it just always feels like something that I knew how to do. Mm. But I know that that's not true. It's just that I don't have these visceral memories of like, and I even think like sometimes when you read about how people learn how to read, there's something painful about it for a lot of people. Like there's, you know, did you take that class with me in college? I feel like you did. I talked about it. Patricia in, Crane. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I thought that you were in that class with me. I talk about it on the pilot episode. Well, you and I were initiated into Freire together. Yeah. Like that was, yeah. And Foucault. Well, all of it, I don't Foucault, know. Michel yeah. Foucault and no. Franz Kafka. Like I yeah. have these visceral, this, these visceral memories of that class, which is why I talk about it on the pilot episode, where like reading that story by Franz Kafka about the ways that like the letters got imprinted onto the body and it was like this form of punishment. I mean, I remember talking with Dr. Crane about that. And yeah, it's pretty wild. I, I actually have that, all the stuff from that class still. Like Same. I pull it out and look at it. Same. It's wild. Same. Yeah. And I think you and I are really intentional about taking that class together. It was like, we both really want to have a share. I, my memory is that that was very intentional. Like we want to have this shared experience. We want to engage in critical analysis of text. You know, there was, I don't know if you remember it that way, but. No, I do. It's, well, I don't remember. I just, I was like, yeah. I'm pretty sure Caitlin was in that class with me because I just, I always will remember that class as even a class where my understanding of literacy expanded so much because it included, you know, we did that whole unit on. Uh, like, well, at the time it was called graffiti. Now we would call it sort of like wall art or something like that, right? But I, I still remember like every time after that going into the bathrooms on campus where there would be like things scratched into the sides of the walls and stuff and being like, oh, this is actually like, it's telling us something. It's a form of literacy. It's helping us understand people's lived experiences. Yes. Hookup culture, all that kind of stuff. You know, people yeah. drawing penises and other sorts of stupid crap on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. And it, it's, it's informed how I'm approaching literacy with my daughter as well. Yeah. Tell um, me about that. Yeah. So, um, so Nora turns six in August and we haven't done any formal literacy education. And, um, 
what I understand at this point is that there is not an evidence base in support of early acquisition of academic skills like reading mm -hmm. and that people who um, don't receive formal education and literacy until about seven years old are much more likely to have a really positive relationship with reading into their mm. adulthood. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's, it's really fascinating to watch her emergent literacy and how she is approaching it. And right now the theme is, I really want to read and write and I don't want to go through the process <laughs> of acquiring the skills and the capacity to do that. What do you think like drives her desire to learn how to read and write, but not want to be part of the process of actually doing it? Well, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know about why she, why she's daunted by the process. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure mm -hmm. I could speak to the why on that. But um, I think, you know, she is totally, conscious of and aware of how um, the technology of literacy, of reading and writing, means access to worlds in all different spaces. And she wants mm. that. Yeah. Yeah, and to be able to communicate. She loves communicating through writing and sending people letters and messages. So how does she do it now, like without the formal training? She's she's but, just figured it out. You you use that word emergent, which I think is exactly yeah. what happens, is that you we're all emergent readers. I mean, even now when I'm reading, I'm sometimes trying to figure out how do I read this? What yeah. is this that I'm reading? Yes. Yeah. So I mean at the moment she asks for she asks for help and she does what she, you know, and I mean it's me just watching watching her make the shapes of the letters on her. I mean, that's just happened. Yeah. And, and so now, and now, you know, she, she has concepts around, um, you know, phonics and phonemic awareness and everything. And so it's just a, it's a collaborative process at the moment. Oh, this is school. what I want to say. No, she doesn't go to school. Mm-hmm. Are you going to homeschool her or she's not going to, I don't know how, yeah, like, so what, is she the, is, what is the plan? The plan is for her not to go to school unless she decides that's what she, that's the experience she really wants to have. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's no, cool. she's not going to school. We're not recreating a schooling environment at home either. So okay. the, the, the underlying assumption is that all humans come into the world with an instinct to learn everything they need to know yeah and then so it's a matter of facilitating it nurturing it supporting yeah no I, rather I, than I, mm -hmm. rather than dictating <laughs> yeah or disciplining or controlling or figuring out like yes yeah the way that we learned which is yes. so so structured so disciplined and so Violent in a lot of ways. Not creative, it's violent. Hmm. Yes, yeah. I so, agree. So this book that you decided, you know, uh, 
Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism. Yeah. It's, it's super wide ranging. You can see I've got so <laughs> yeah. many tabs, so many things. What, what drew you to this book? Something that spoke off the shelf or? Well, um, I about, so a little over a year ago, I went to visit a school that's practicing self-directed education in New York City. Hmm. And it was um, the founding Agile Learning Center in, and it's on the Upper East Side. And I just, I mean, I'm really interested in non, you know, on consent-based education, on self-directed education for young people, democratic education. And so I'm always looking to learn more about what folks are doing around the world and became aware of this, this organization, this place, this space, this community supporting young people to follow their interests in New York and went to visit. And one of the um, learning facilitators there recommended that I read Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. Um, have you read that? No, I ordered it because I'm, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that book too, because I'm thinking about using it this fall. Actually, my colleague Rick and I were teaching two different classes, but we want to pick one book that might have the two classes talk to each other. And so we're thinking about that book because for various reasons, but I haven't read it yet. So I don't, I don't know if it's the right book for what we're trying to envision us doing, but how did, how did you receive that text? I mean, I loved it just deeply, profoundly. Um, yes. And, um, and at the same time, alongside it, I read um, a book called Joyful Militancy. Mm. The, the names of the authors, I cannot tell you right now. No, I'll I've look heard. them up. Yeah, when I do the transcript, yeah, I'll look um, them up. But really, what's been sitting with me for a long time is social change that's embodied, that's heartfelt, and that's massive in its imagination without being this egoic, grandiose vision about like what I'm doing to change the world, which um, I think my education somehow kind of <laughs> fostered notions along those lines the latter you know and me about like uh, i have i've been you know politicized in university like i've got to do big things and yet um i also seem to notice that in the trying to be and do differently there was this this kind of criticality competition and this heaviness and seriousness and this, I don't really have my own vocabulary for describing it. And I think Adrian Marie Brown's work and the authors of Joyful Militancy really capture this in a way that I don't know how to yet, mm -hmm. but the sense of how to, bring joy and aliveness to the work of re-envisioning worlds without yeah. getting too caught up and being special 
or changing the world. Yeah. So like kind of everyday change as opposed to, well, joy, I, I understand the joy part. I, I think I understand what you mean also when you say that there's this kind of, this way that we are inculcated to think that we have the ability to actually change systems when in fact systems are not things that we probably will ever dismantle in our lifetimes. So it's not that you give up on that, but it's just that you come to realization that maybe you have to make that possible in your own life or something. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. And emergent strategy. I know we need to get on the book and we're actually, no, it's fine. About, it doesn't emergent, matter. But an emergent matter. strategy, you know, like it's talking about, you know, um, biomimicry and fractals and looking at like, how am I practicing freedom and liberation in my life right now? And what could I do in my relationships right now that really aligns with the just free loving world that I want for everyone. So in such a profound way. So, so reading this book, pleasure activism was sort of to build on previous knowledge that you had already had with this author. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You chose this book. I already had the book when you selected it because people told me I need to read it. Um, but I had not read it. So it's, you know, one of those things I've got many shelves of books that people have told me to read that I, that I haven't read yet. So, you know, it's, the book is really wide ranging and I think that there's a, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, like, but starting with, with some of these things that you brought out. So I've kind of, if you see the notes, I've sort of started talking a little bit about, or I've tried to break this down into sections, uh, things that I think might be thematic in terms of, we don't have to settle on these, but you know, one thing that this book really talks about a lot is, is the body, um, the importance of the body. And you kind of talked, uh, or you pulled out two quotes in particular, uh, here. One is on page 116 of the text, which is, this quote, the link is all in the body as a practice ground for transformation. And a second quote uh, from just a few pages later that says, when my body feels good, my life feels good, and I want to keep going and fight for my right to exist and love and grow and evolve. This is true whether whether it is in the context of a meeting or a relationship, or a night of lovemaking. That doesn't mean the absence of discomfort or awkwardness or hard conversations or learning, but the majority experience should be presence, being fully alive. And I think that comes from experiencing ease, pleasure, connection, and as Nina Simone saying, feeling good. Yes. Tell me about this. Why, why is this resonant with you so much? Um, so a big theme in my family and my relationship with my beloved is about really getting embodied and discovering that a lot of our socialization and the way that we were cared for in our families has, I mean, I already mentioned earlier when I talked about reading, you know, reading early in life was an escape to be somewhere else than in my body in a in the 
present moment in my body. Mm. And so this call to really be in one's body, in my body, in this present moment fully is a huge invitation for honesty and for feeling. Um, it also, it interests me also with respect to my sort of, I don't, I don't know, some of my sort of enduring questions about how to, um, how to be anti-racist, how to um, live in this body that's been socialized in the context of white supremacy. And um, I did some master's research about an aspect of institutionalized racism in medical school in New Zealand, mm -hmm. where I lived for a number of years and spent some time with my head in the social psychology literature. And something that really stuck out to me is that an unconscious bias in clinical encounters, and I mean, medical racism is just massive. I can imagine, and yeah. Massive. Um, that, and, and again, you know, I finished this piece of work five years ago and I haven't stayed with the social psychology literature, but um, what really jumped out to me at the time was that our emotions, our affect, mediate how we behave externally, unconsciously. So when we're looking at unconscious bias, unconscious discriminatory practices, um, all of that is mediated by our feeling in the moment. And so I've had this ongoing, you know, I call it sort of like, I have this imaginary research project going on about how could we get medical clinicians to feel all their feelings when they're in a clinical encounter and recognize, oh, this sensation in my solar plexus, that feels like pity or in my throat, that feels like contempt. So I'm in this moment at a great, greater risk of enacting these types of discriminatory practices. Because what I seem to notice is that a lot of the way that we're talking about racism, discrimination, bias, it seems to really center in the mind and the head. And my sense is that in order for us to really evolve and change, we have to feel our feelings, but not in a fragile way where we're reacting to our feelings and asking black indigenous people of color to hold us while we feel bad about our racist thinking, but rather like, oh, these feelings are important because they tell me something that I really need to look at. Mm. So, so Adrian, yeah. So that, that, does that bring us back to the, the body as the site? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I was thinking about as I kept reading this book and I just knew the body would come up because it's such a present force in the text is that, well, I was really thinking about two things. One is I was thinking about what's going on as I age. And one of the things that I've really started to come to a, a different sort of appreciation about and a different awareness of is the pain that I feel 
in my body, right? Like not the pleasure, which is what the book is asking me to do, but the actual pain. And I know that it's like years and years of carrying trauma, which is another thing that comes up in the book, right? So I, I feel a lot of pain now in my emerging, you know, 40s in the top part of my back because I'm pretty consistently uh, clenched up. I've noticed that I'm clenched up. I feel a lot of pain in my, some, sometimes there'll just be like pain that shows up, like in my knees or, you know, and, I, and I'm very interested in thinking about that. But I'm also really interested in thinking about the ways that as a queer man, I was socialized in a certain way to think about my body mm. and, you know, with a lot of vulnerability and just honesty, I've generally lived a life where I, I hate my body. Like I don't like to see myself naked. I don't feel good about sex or pleasure because I carry this like societal shit that has been programmed mm. into us about like what queerness means and all of that. And so this book really, I've always known that, but it really forces me to kind of deal with some of those issues that I haven't dealt with in my life, you know? I hear you. I hear you. And thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's why like, you know, I, I was just thinking like you pulled this quote from page 116, but I pulled some other sub quotes because, you know, a lot of what she's talking about in that chapter is about, you know, well, she, she, she talks a lot about this idea of like doing things, for example, of standing in front of the mirror and finding yes. a part of your body and being like that part of, you know, that part of my body is beautiful. Like, fat roll, you are beautiful, or yeah. pimple, you are beautiful, or whatever the case is, like all these things that we're socialized against. And yeah. it's the same thing with emotions. Like she, she does at some point talk about like getting naked with your emotions, right? Like when you feel yeah. something, be like, it's okay. Emotion, it's beautiful that you're elated, or it's beautiful that you're frustrated or whatever the case is. Like that's an important thing to think about. Yes. So how yes. are you practicing that in your life? Well, I'm not, I mean, I am terrified of it. Like, okay. like particularly, I mean, when Adrienne Marie Brown talks about the practice of spending a year looking at herself in the mirror, like I do not have a full length mirror in my house mm -hmm. because I know if there is one, my habit will be to look at myself and talk shit and criticize. Mm. Yeah. And so. Has it, it always I mean, been that way for you? Because like part of what I was interested in was I just, I seem to remember that, you know, when we were in college, you had a relationship to your body that I did not understand. And you oh. tried to help me think about what the relationship to my body was. I mean, this is like a very, um, maybe an example that some people will think is, is funny or whatever, but I still use it today. And it was this idea that like in our bathroom, our shared bathroom, 
you like had that book, Everybody Poops. And it was about like this idea of like the, the body, of course, right? We, we have to find a way to like excrete the, yeah. the stuff that we don't need in the body. Yes. And, and you taught me to like not be ashamed of that. So I'm just interested in how, you know, has that changed or is that not your experience of what your body is like or, or what is it? I mean, it's, it's always changing. I would say I've, yeah. it's always changing. I spent a great deal of time. I think being pregnant and birthing another human mm. who, um, is anyway, that has had a huge impact on my, my sense of how important it is to really heal my relationship to my body and my attitude, you know, my attitudes and the way that I look at myself because I notice also and have for a long time that the way I perceive all the bodies around me is with genuine reverence, you know, for the most part, like I noticed that, that, you know, my social programming is there as well. But generally speaking, like I have my capacity for like reverence and enjoyment and appreciation of human bodies, human, you know, other bodies, I'm putting that in square coat, you know, scare quote, but like, it's just much more vast than what I, than what I can give to myself. Yep. And in university, I mean, it is horrifying when I reflect on some of the friendships, you know, before, you know, you and I were living together, like some of my friendships, the amount of time that my friends and I spent talking about our body hate. I mean, it'd be interesting. Like it would be absolutely astonishing if I could travel back in time and get some data on that. So what, what do you think shift? I mean, like, do you, do you have a memory like I have of that year that we lived together where there was a shift in college or I, I mean, I know you say it's always changing. I'm sure I will never yeah. experience this, that birthing a child changes one's relationship to your body in, in many ways. But, you know, how, how do you, I don't know. There's like a lot of questions here. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about, you know, so much of what, uh, what she's talking about in the book, what Adrian is talking about is about this idea of finding pleasure in our body. Mm. And I really am interested in thinking about like, how do we find that pleasure and why is that important, particularly in this moment? Yes. Do you have yes. any thoughts? Do you have any, how are you doing that? Maybe, well, I mean, maybe the book is helping you to think about that, but. I think the book is definitely helping me to think about that because I think also, I don't know how to articulate this. For me, university, generally speaking, like, I felt quite free mm -hmm. to be in my body. And I had some practices, some pleasure practices going to, like, I, 
you know, University of Minnesota, once you had a full course schedule, you could take anything else on top of that without additional cost. And I filled my schedule with dance classes, you know, and yeah. And, you know, and I navigated also my own sexuality and having relationships that really were ultimately about sexual pleasure, but then also negotiating this weird thing that was going on with the, um, the unspoken assumptions about what sex means between two people in their early twenties, you know, like, um, so I don't really, I don't have a great deal of clarity on what I'm trying to say right at this moment, but, um, I felt much freer to pursue my own pleasure during that particular period of my life. And now I'm really challenged as a parent to make space for my own pleasure when I watch myself prioritize the pleasure of my beloved and my daughter above my own consistently. And that doesn't serve anybody. So, yeah, well, I mean, do you and your, and you don't have to answer this because I don't want this to be like, you know, (laughs) confessional about relationships, (laughs) especially since it'll be online, but, um, you know, do you feel like you and your partner talk about pleasure and how to, you, you say you're like devoting a lot of time or even there's these chapters in the book where towards the end where uh, these, some of these contributing authors are talking about this idea of like, how do you even teach children about like the pleasures of the body? Right. And how do you help them explore the body? And I, that's of course not an experience I have, but I'm just thinking about, you know, what does that mean? How do you do it? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say that Brenton and I as a pair, we're kind of, we're, we have a habitual orientation towards seriousness. So like this book is serving an amazing invitation to me and to, you know, me as a member of this family to really bring pleasure into what we're prioritizing. Absolutely. Um, And so I can even imagine Brenton listening to this and hearing me talk about prioritizing his pleasure. (laughs) And I'd be like, whatever. (laughs) You know? Um, But there's this, I mean, it ties into this feeling of caregiving. And I mean, and and Mm. that's talked about in the book as well. Um, Caregiving is pleasure. And I, you know, it's like, well, for me, caregiving really is a pleasure if I'm choosing to to give care rather than doing it out of sense of obligation or duty. Um, but again, I mean, ta- talking to Nora about her body and the pleasures of her body, you know, a lot of it is like, you know, I remember when she first touched her vulva and clitoris and she was like, Ooh, that tickles, you know, and just talking about it, like normally every, you know, just like, yes, that is the most sensitive part of your body and you can touch it as much as you want and enjoy that. And so, yes, I, yeah, I'm putting a lot of conscious intent into having, you know, 
creating a sex positive, positive environment for her to grow up in. And um, yet you feel yourself sort of like in an environment where you're not able to necessarily feel that pleasure as an adult. Absolutely. I mean, and, and as what I appreciate so much about Adrienne Marie Brown is she talks about contradictions, but it is really quite, I mean, in an email exchange, you talked about this book stirring you. For me, it really brings to the surface all of my contradictions in a really powerful way. And it's like, oh, I have all these ideas about who I am in the world. And yet, fundamentally, like, how am I showing up in my own body in alignment? Often not very well. No, yeah, it, it's totally about that, that set of contradictions. I mean, again, yeah. you know, going back to this idea of like how the book really challenged me in terms of the way that the way that queerness when we were growing up in society you know being gay was it's so different now i mean i can't wait to see what what these young people experience but when we were growing up dealing with being gay it was like everything was about denying the body pleasure because pleasure would give you aids Pleasure yeah. would give you sexual disease. Ple and, and so you were just trained to think about this is, you know, you can't possibly do it. It's yeah. wrong. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. And, um, you know, so all that to say that, like, I often will position myself in society in certain ways as like a non-sexual being primarily because there's there's a there's still a certain amount of shame wrapped up in my own sexuality that I have to deal with, right? That I have never dealt with. So the book is forcing me to do that. But also in order to make other people feel comfortable. I mean, you can it, despite all the social progress, people are still very uncomfortable around around gay people. Like they don't want to touch your body. They are afraid that you're hitting on them. There's, there's all kinds of things. So even things that might be pleasurable from a non-sexual perspective, things like mm. hugs, handshakes, you know, kind of camaraderie in terms of intimate friendship, a lot of queer people are really denied those possibilities because they spend so much time and energy making sure that other people feel comfortable around them, that they don't get to experience their own body. So it's like, you're always worried about someone else's body. You're not worried about your own. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can I, that reminds me of yeah, a, totally. a, a quote in the book mm -hmm. that I wonder if you feel connects. Um, page 231. Uh-huh. Let me see. And this is, I mean, this is in a chapter, this is in a chapter, pornography and accountability within the context of looking at sex within the context of me too. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in a subsection. Yeah. And, and about halfway down the page, um, I have to honor all the silence in these examples, honor my own silence. Our silence is a survival strategy. Our silence has protected us against potential violence. 
an unfortunately common response of patriarchy and or other kinds of power when met with rejection. Our silence protects us from being rejected. Our silence upholds social norms that teach us that it's more important to be polite than to be honest, even when discussing our own flesh. Silence played some role in helping us survive to get to this moment, but silence will not get us to a place of power over our bodies and it will not get us the pleasure we want. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought this section up because I think it's really important. Um, will you hold on two seconds so I can let my dog yeah. out of this room because, you of know, course. he apparently wants to go out. So, one yeah, second. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> you want to go out, out there? Okay, sorry. No, I, you know, what I wrote here is that, um, as Audre Lorde says, our silence will not protect us. And of course, like one of the foundational essays in the front part of the book is from Audre Lorde, The Uses of the Erotic, right? Yeah. From Sister Outsider, which also ironically, or maybe not ironically, is a book that, although I had read pieces of Audre Lorde, you know, hierarchy of oppression and stuff. I had never read Sister Outsider until this past February, like from front to back. Right. And the whole thing is just, it's unbelievable. So, so this idea of silence, you know, what are you thinking of here in terms of how that plays into what we were talking about with the body? Well, I think what you were talking about in terms of your sexuality, same, you know, this experience of concerning oneself for other people, about other people's comfort. Um, I think that's what you were saying about, you know, yeah. And that, and so in, in, in essence, the reason why I connected with that passage is like to silence ourselves and, and a silencing of the body, not just of the voice, but also like how we move and how we reach out to people. I think of the silencing, you know, a, across different modes of expression, but this kind of clamping down, quieting down, minimizing. Um, and I think one of the main, one of the incredible gifts of this book is that throughout the interviews and the contributors and Adrienne Marie Brown's own narrative about her experience. And there are all of these examples of how to speak up in all the ways that one can. Um, but I, mean, again, I, want, I, I mean, want to connect something here, which yeah. is, um, you know, there is this whole section in the book that talks about the Me Too movement. And you also kind of brought up this idea of like the way that bodies right now are particularly around, like when we're thinking about white supremacy, anti-racist actions, the, the form of the white body moving through space. And I've, and then I just connected this with 
everything related to the COVID crisis, right? The ways that in a lot of that the book doesn't deal with this, but it, it's so much about the embodied that in many ways, I think one of the things that's starting to happen is there is like this lack of physical contact that is occurring mm. between people because people don't want to get sick. And we're trying to be socially responsible, but there's, I'm even just noticing that like, my, even my inability as a person to just be around other bodies, not touch them, not, but to just have presence is starting to make me feel very frenetic and very mm. like not in touch with my body. Like my body feels scary right now for all of these reasons, right? I'm a white man. I'm gay. There's COVID popping all over the place, especially here in Houston. I mean, the body becomes a site of fear. Yeah. Yes. And she's trying to teach us to, to say we, we have to confront that fear, but we have to think a little bit more about different ways that we can do that. I don't know. I just, the social relationship to the present, I don't, I don't know if you, how you think about some of this in terms of the Me Too movement, if, if you're even involved in that, or just talking more about the way that the body functions right now in society. Um, the way that the body functions right now in society. Um, What comes up for me right now is it seems like the body functions as a mirror to our own vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that comes up, so all of this might be totally nonsensical. It's fine. <laughs> but, no, it makes total sense. We're working but, through it. Yeah. Um, but I've also what I've been really contemplating fear of contagion and how that strikes fear among humans in a completely different way. And so in some ways we're having to make ourselves more separate while, while simultaneously coming to terms with our interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, quite a beautiful disruption in many ways of maybe how a lot of us move through our lives and thinking about ourselves as this separate container that's, but, but that also probably speaks a lot to my privilege as well to be able to say like, Oh, I'm the separate container. Like a lot of my identity privilege will be. Contained in that notion. Um, and a lot of ableism, I think, is contained in that notion mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But when I think about the body right now, yeah, there's this. There seems to me this this paradox of this this reckoning with our interconnectedness, and also this mandate to maintain separateness. Yeah. Although I think that, like, what's been really bizarre to me 
maybe not bizarre, but what I've just been observing is, and particularly in the United States where we just have such a, so many absurdities. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it's like in Great Britain. I imagine it's somewhat similar given that, you know, you have Boris and all these other people, but um, I've just, it, it, I just find it very fascinating that for example, there is this way that people in the United States think of their bodies as like these individual separate units. And I think that that is part, I think what's missing in the United States response to COVID in particular, but also in response to racial injustice and rape culture and everything is the fact that, and, and this is one of the things that you actually pointed out uh, one of the quotes that you pointed out, I think it's on uh, it? page page 332. And yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe this will, I mean, this is one of the best pages in the whole book, but yeah. it's this idea of like, who owns your body and yeah. how, how does that work? Yeah. You know, oh, this, this page, this whole page is like, Read, read this quote that you selected here, this as for love. I'm trying to find it. I'm having a little moment. Oh, yes. As for love, how dare anyone ever claim the life of another in any shape or form, via love or hate, via human trafficking or marriage? The channel does not matter. You hardly own yourself, let alone any others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then further down on that page, you know, I mean, I highlighted almost the whole page, but further yeah. down, it's like, no one can own you yeah. and you are free to share your love, share your time and body, share your wine and laughter, mm. share your dreams and worries, respect the mind in its sharpness and loss, the mood in its light and darkness, the wealth in its abundance and poverty. But then that, that middle paragraph that I skipped might go to this question that you are really asking, which is understand the individuality and the communality as well as the commonality of life, pain, and death. And in between, be open to love, joy, and promise. What I, what I think has been really interesting about this moment with the COVID crisis and with, with just everything is the way that people have once again reproduced this idea that certain bodies are just expendable. Yeah. Right? It's like my, my ability to not wear a mask is more important than your ability to live. Mm. You know, grocery store clerk, male yeah. person, I mean, whoever yeah. these essential workers are. Yeah. And I just don't know how we get people to see past that. Well, I think, yeah, from my public health education comes in here. And I think often there's just a massive confusion around population health, population health level interventions mm -hmm. and how they play out at the individual level. Mm -hmm. And often across all different situations, there's a tension where when you look at the intervention that will produce morbidity and mortality at the population level, 
it often doesn't predict at the individual level, an individual person's level of risk. And I think people have a really hard time not dealing with that tension. Um, and yeah, but your question was more, how do you, how do you invite people into a consciousness that's inclusive of all? Yeah. Well, I, think, I mean, I think one of the things that she's saying, and it actually goes to this larger idea of love, right? Mm -hmm. That comes up in the book. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that the book really made me sort of grapple with was this, was the way that we think of love so much as just the, it is the sexual, but it's also like there's pleasure beyond the sexual and you need to have sexual pleasure, but love itself is not really about sexual pleasure, right? Mm. And resisting thinking of, thinking of love as a form of political resistance means mm. yes, pleasuring yourself and your body, but also thinking about love in like a, a larger, in a larger way that, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just that, that chapter, Love is Political Resistance, where uh, she sort of talks a little bit about this idea that, you know, like, this is a quote on page 59. One of the things that I was really wanting to talk about was this idea of, we don't learn, she says, quote, we don't learn to love in a linear path from self to family to friends to spouse as we might have been taught. We learn to love by loving. We practice with each other on ourselves in all kinds of relationships. And right now we need to be in rigorous practice because we can no longer afford to love people the way we've been loving them. Yes. So it like smacks you with this idea of what, what love is pleasure. Love is pleasurable. It's part of pleasure activism, but mm. it's not necessarily just entirely about sexual pleasure. No, no, no. I think it's also about responsibility and a relinquishing of control. I mean, um, yes, I don't, something I, yeah, I, I, yes, I think the way that I've been taught to love often was laced with control, not just control of the other, but control of oneself, control of one's speech, lest I, you know, hurt anybody, control of one's needs, lest I inconvenience anybody, control of my desires, 
lest they scare anybody. Mm. Um, and so when I hear, yeah, when I hear the, the call to learn to love differently, I'm hearing, yeah, the lesson that I'm really taking with me around that is around noticing all the ways that I'm trying to control myself and other people in my relationships. Mm-hmm. Does that, Yeah. what, do, no, you th- what do you think? I mean, when you read that. I think the thing that I, when I read it, I'm thinking about this idea that she, you started talking about it just in different, maybe different language. And I think that it, it goes back to what we were discussing at the front end of our dialogue, which is you, so you just said so much of how I was taught to love was taught through control. Right. And I think one of the things that this book really does well is it, it teaches also that what we've actually done to ourselves as a species is we've, we've traumatized love, right? Mm. Like in every aspect. So we've created, we've created this whole system. You, it's about control. It's about boundaries. It's about even things like monogamy, no polyamory, no pleasuring of the body, all of these types of systems that we've created which are actually just forms of social trauma. And so when you're trying to think about like, how do you love people differently, which is so critical in this moment, it, I mean, I don't know. It just makes you think about what what should we be doing? Love is not a post on social media. No. You know, love is love is practice. Love is like really, really difficult. Um, and I just think that we're all traumatized, and I just worry that we're being even more traumatized by the current moment we're we're going mm. through. And I'm just trying to think about like, how do you hold on to this concept of communal love as maybe a guiding principle that we want to bring into a post-COVID, hopefully emerging anti-racist world. Yeah, and I don't know because I'm not, sure what's going to signal the end of COVID. Yeah, well, I think we need I think yeah, I mean I think we need to get over that fallacy too, right? That there's like some well no, because people really do think that there's going to be like a day where somebody issues a press release that like COVID is over. In some parts which I just don't think is how it works. No, I don't understand it to work that way either. So I guess I, the reason why I brought that up is because there, I don't think there is going to be a moment when we enter a post-COVID reality. Oh, and I see. Okay, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, 
and pandemics, particularly with climate change and the climate crisis, mm -hmm. like pandemics, I mean, this is not gonna be an unusual part of our experience, okay? And, and I guess it'll be interesting Particularly with the, you know, when you talk about proximity to other humans and being able to discern when it's appropriate to be close and when it's responsible to be close. And um, when it's necessary to be close, even if some people may think it's irresponsible, like protesting. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and that ongoing discernment, I mean, I, now I've lost what your initial question was but about loving, loving post-COVID. Was that the- Yeah, the, but I guess I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to think, yeah, it's, I mean, okay, so post-COVID, I agree with you. Uh, not correct language from me because I don't think there will be a post-COVID world. Um, I, I don't think it's gonna go away ever personally. So I think we're gonna have to adjust. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is like for a long time now, people have been talking about this broader concept of love, hmm. you know? I mean, you can even go back to civil rights era, even before hmm. that, right? Like this idea hmm. of the beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about. You can yeah. think about like people now, uh, like the Poor People's Campaign in the United States with Reverend William Barber, um, who's really trying to re-emphasize and refocus on this idea of, caring for those in our community and thinking about how do we take care of, you know, we can't tackle poverty, for example, without love. But I think that people don't know what that means. And, and so this quote that I read just strikes me because particularly the part of like, we're not, we're not in rigorous practice about love because we're traumatized. So it's it, so it's it's almost like a horse egg question to me in some way. It's like, do we deal with the trauma so we can get to love, or do we think about and enact practices of love that will help us to overcome the trauma? I think that's the one of the tensions in the book. Yeah. Can you say more? <laughs> <laughs> I can. Yes, I can talk all and, day. Yes, please. <laughs> I. Um, I mean, I'm not a trauma expert. I'm, you know, I, there's, and so I, I, I have a really like, I'm not, you know, I have a real hesitancy about speaking about trauma and ways to live with, move through, integrate, heal. Yeah, but that's that's part of know. what she's talking about. Yeah. I guess like, does it resonate with you maybe that, because she uses that language in the book. She says, you know, there's collective trauma, there's individual mm. trauma. We've talked about that, right? You're mm. saying that you learned love through control. Me saying mm. that there's trauma in my body from learning to be, learning less about my own body and learning more about how I relate to other people's bodies in order to make them comfortable. Like there's just mm -hmm. myriad forms of social trauma and individual body trauma. Yeah. And 
I, I and guess, intergenerational trauma as well. Oh yeah, and all the science that's coming out about yeah. the way that trauma gets carried in the body across sometimes five, six, seven generations. I mean, I'm sure you've read some of that stuff. So, yeah. but she also talks about healing, and yeah. so I'm I'm just trying to think about when she says maybe this is the question, Caitlin. Okay. <laughs> maybe we can work through it together. Okay. Please. Like when she when she says that we need to to do healing, right? Which, which she does say that. She says that on page 62. We are mm. all in need of healing. So how are we doing healing work? And I think part of it is this concept of love and the body. I mean, tie it. Just, just start talking about like what you're thinking about in relation to, you know, we can't change the trauma of the world but we can do something in our own individual bodies to heal the trauma or in our own individual lives, to think about love differently, to form democratic community differently. Mm. That's just what I'm thinking of. Yeah. It's okay if there's no answer. It's just something I found intriguing. Yeah. I mean, I think... I don't know if there's an answer. Mm -hmm. But for me, it looks like allowing all the sensations, mm. feeling all the feelings, mm -hmm. doing my very best to notice when I want to react to those sensations and feelings and direct my reaction at other people mm. and channel that energy differently mm -hmm. so that I can stay in connection. Mm. And that's, that requires discipline and commitment. Do you find yourself actively, like when you're feeling a feeling, thinking consciously, like, I need, yes, feeling come in? I do find myself practicing this. Okay, good. And I also notice how, how, um, how I don't know that how the uh, the parts of me that want to resist the feeling are have a real trickster energy about like it about them and like these I don't I don't know how to language it yet but there's this I can know sometimes I'll be feeling you know something uncomfortable an uncomfortable sensation will come up someone will say something or I'll read something and I'll feel really heavy or sad like through my chest mm -hmm. and I'll go okay yes. Thank you. I can feel this feeling right now. And then unconsciously I'll employ some distraction technique or strategy, or I'll, I'll be pushing against it internally, but without even really realizing it. So there's this, at the same time as I'm 
trying to be intentional about feeling everything, I'm also aware that there are um, competing competing um, I don't know how to describe it. Um, I think being in relationship with a young person, my daughter is provides an amazing gift in terms of really practicing this. How? Say more about that. Well, um, so for example, I'll story from last night. Um, Nora was asking me how old she is and when her next birthday is. And she said, you know, I'm five. And then like, how many quarters am I five and three quarters? And I said, well, no, you've experienced more than three quarters of your sixth year. And I did a little bit of, you know, mental maths. And I said, you're five and five sixths, which was not a concept that was accessible to Nora. And that was really frustrating. Mm -hmm. And she started screaming. Mm. And so here I am with this young person who is looking at me and screaming. And like it made her viscerally upset or like she was yelling at you because she didn't have the concept viscerally upset okay got it yeah yeah like beside her some people say she was beside herself sure and so in that moment it's like well the parenting legacy that i inherited you know was you just try try to try to quiet the young person try to Try to solve it. Try to explain away their distress. And because that's what I inherited, in these moments with Nora, I get really activated. And my best understanding of what that means right now is that when I was a younger person and say a five and five, six year old body, and I was really reaching to understand something. I, I wasn't met with the attention and loving presence and patience that I really needed in that moment. And was probably shushed, given a kind of half-assed answer, or maybe lectured, or distracted in that moment. So... So how do you react to Nora in that moment now? So my aspiration always, and I'm not, I'm not always successful in doing this, but always in that moment, it's be present with what's here right now and affirm however she's feeling and notice all of these impulses that come up and hold that too without acting without enacting them and so and when I'm able when I have the capacity to do that and sometimes I get to activate I don't have like the what I'm now understanding is like the nervous system capacity to hold it in that moment sometimes I have to say like Nora I just 
I'm going to come back. I need a few minutes to go breathe. You know, but I find that when I'm able to sit with her eye to eye and echo what she's sharing, the rage, the fury, the storm, the grief, whatever's moving through, the agitation, it passes through like a storm. So what you're saying is that like in some ways to kind of circle it back to what we were talking about in yeah. terms of like practices is yeah. that you are, you, you feel the, you feel in your own body, but you also feel the energy coming from her. Right. And maybe yeah. like if there's a screaming child screaming at you, your visceral reaction is to say, I need to calm the child I need to discipline the child. I need to tell that I need to distract the child from the thing that's upset it. But what you're saying is let the child feel the feeling. Yes. So that they learn how to work through the feeling so that the next time they maybe won't have the same feeling again, or they'll, or they'll work through it differently or they'll allow the feeling to be there. Or they'll know that their body is safe no matter what they're feeling. And okay. I get that from my, and I credit my doula, Benny Dancy, with that one. Like, my body is safe no matter what I'm feeling. And so, I guess, related to the quote that you brought back, I'll be, I think I'll be able to tie this together. I think my practice and loving differently now, and how I'm, I'm really practicing this with Nora and with Brenton, too. Less successfully. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> More successfully with the young person in the family. And by success, I just mean, you know, I, I, no, I no, notice that my capacity to sit with her feelings is different than sitting with the feelings of another adult, which is I'm curious about in myself. But yeah, that loving, that, that attention, loving presence to whatever is, including my own reactions to what's going on mm -hmm. well I, I can tell you i i feel it's very complicated with another human with a with a partner particularly because yes. sometimes <laughs> yes talk to me about this <laughs> talk to me no it's it's just that sometimes there's ways that when you're with a partner you are just triggered by things that the person says and you know again there's this there's this way that we're socialized to not feel our feelings hmm. and but but also that you are simultaneously trained that if you're going to have certain feelings you should deal with those feelings in a certain type of way and the way that you should deal with those feelings is that they it essentially rational, right? So it's like, oh, you shouldn't yell because yelling invokes anger and it raises, you know, your cortisol levels and there's all kinds of like stuff that happens and it makes the situation much more stressful. But at the same time, if you don't do what is the natural inclination feeling of your body then you're actually holding that and it ends up sort of like going back to what I said, it, it finds a way to, to plant itself in your body differently. Mm. So maybe it's, 
you know, maybe that's why the day after you feel those things, if you don't express them, for some reason, you know, your left toe hurts or something. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I've noticed that. I've noticed that when you don't allow the emotion to come out, it, it ends up showing up in your body some way the next day for me. Yes. Yeah. And yet when you do let it out, it also shows up in the body the next day because often you'll feel guilty about the Mm. way that you let your emotive sort of come out. (sighs) For me, it's like, it's about frustration, right? Like I have never gotten a good handle on things that make me feel frustrated and how to express frustration in a way that doesn't come across as like angry or whatever. I've just never been able to figure that out. Try as I have, try as I have. (laughs) And do you, and how about anger? Yeah, anger, I think, is like I'm able to, I don't know. I think that the way that I deal with anger is much more that I, I get angry about things that are large systemic issues more than angry about things that happen like in my immediate I don't tend Mm. to be like an angry person Mm. but when we start talking about things that are like fucked up in society unjust right like and I'll use the language of fucked up because um well partially because like uh one of my one of my friends uh Laura is writing a paper right now (laughs) that and I'm in a writing group with her and and I read it yesterday and that the title of the paper is um something like fuck it uh bringing bringing a fuck it mentality to like academic work or something and it's about this idea of like instead of doing what we want to do the the academy is constantly trying to like discipline us and so we should just say mm. fuck it but anyway um it's more complicated than that yeah <laughs> You know, but yeah, I get really angry about things that I, politics, you know, angers me, Uh, racism angers, like these big, large problems that I know in my own tiny way, I'm probably doing something about it by teaching Mm. courses about it or by reading about Mm. it or this podcast, hopefully. But um, I don't know if it's the best way to deal with it to get angry. I try to think about like, sometimes I try to think about people who I know should be angry that do not express anger. And I try to go, what are they doing? (laughs) Like that person should be really, really angry. And they're just like, do you know what I'm talking about? They're just talking in a voice like this, right? Like, Oh. oh yeah, what you did was really, was really not great, you know? You know, oh, you I murdered know. you! You murdered my you know you murdered my mother. I forgive you, um, and it's like. No, I mean, <laughs> enlightenment me. is enlightenment a potential answer. I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty. It's pretty funny. I guess yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, but that yeah. Do you want to circle back to frustration though, and being able to. 
No, I think, um, you know, I really appreciate like just hearing about what you're trying to do in that regard. And I think the important thing is the book provides a pathway for people who want to read it to start thinking about the complexity of living in these contradictions. And, and I would say like the difficult nature of actually bringing love to the forefront of what you do, bringing the body to the forefront of what you do. Mm. And just wrestling, you know, with all of those, with all of the ways that we have to be doing that. Yeah. There were a couple, there were a couple other chapters that I really did want to. Yes. I'd be curious about your thoughts. Um, Okay. Please. If that's okay. And then I want to make sure that if there are other things that you want to sort of talk about that we do that before, before we have to, you know, end our dialogue. But one is there's, there's these kind of, I really appreciate these chapters where there are some contributors who come in that make us think differently about some social issues that often don't get talked about. And there are two Are you referring to the, the sex work um, chapter? Is yes. That one of? yes. Yes. So there's yeah. a chapter in the book called Fuck You, Pay Me. Okay. Yes. That I think it, it takes up the idea of sex work and why sex work might, why we might want to as a society consider um, making sex work legal and all of this. Um, but it also gets into kind of larger issues around the way that the body functions in capitalist societies. So I really want to talk about uh, that chapter. And there's also a chapter about called Conditions of Possibility that talks about drug use and the way that we deal with people who are using drugs in society. And I think both of these chapters are really Mm. important because they provide a different framework, a different lens on which to consider these issues. So what do you think about those, either of those chapters? Is there, is there one or the other okay. that you? Well, but I mean. It's around okay, page 182, so, yeah. 183. Well, so, yeah. so, so fuck you, pay me mm. by Chanel Gallant. Gallant. Yep. Gallant. Thank you for your pronunciation. Probably was my favorite chapter of the entire book. And I, and I'm going to share what happened in my house. I, because I think this really illuminates how potent and how poignant this chapter is. I read the chapter and I raced down to the kitchen where my partner Brenton and our friend Helena were. And I said, I just read the most fucking amazing essay about sex work that I've ever read. And it just, and I gave some examples, I paraphrased. And I was like all hot and fiery about it, like fully passionate, you know, just on fire about this chapter. And um, the impact of me sharing that was that Brenton felt, and I hope, I mean, 
this is an interesting issue of consent because I'm talking about this without Brenton's consent. So I might need to check with him first before you put this on, on the internet. Okay. No problem. Um, I will need to do that. Um, but it, that he got really, he was upset by what he heard me say. Which is what, that you supported the idea of legalizing well, sex work or was it something broader or, than that? Or it, it was the notion of, um, it was around the, the labor that sex is work. Okay. Yeah. And how, and how also, um, so this is on page 182, who's afraid of the big bad whore. I think this is what I paraphrased for, for Brenton. Um, that in a sense, women and femmes are all forced to be sexual laborers to please mm -hmm. men and masculine people with our bodies. But we are never allowed to admit that this is, that this giving of pleasure is real work and that sometimes it is forced work. We are certainly never allowed to take control of this work and negotiate to receive something in exchange for it. Because asking for money makes a woman or femme a whore. And surprise, our culture tells us that this is the very worst thing we can be. So I, Yes. And then, you know, so all of this. So yeah, and women and femmes are supposed to treat sexual pleasure like good wives doing the housework. Do it for straight men, mostly at home, invisibly with a smile, and of course for free. Make them happy. Don't ask for too much. Wouldn't want to see women and femmes actually get something in return, would we? So I was paraphrasing that. And I and, and Brenton felt really quite upset and concerned that I was saying that he expects me to perform sexual pleasure for him, irrespective of whether I want to or not. Now, what's interesting is that that kind of, that hurt, that wound, means that it's, we haven't yet been able to, to look underneath that and sit with what's there. That even if consciously that's not what we want to embody in our relationship, that that cultural conditioning, that socialization is present. Yeah. To be it, able to, yeah. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Say what you're going to say. No, I was just going to say that this chapter it's, it's honestly one of the best essays I've read also. And it's, it's, it's not actually, it's not just about like the idea of legalizing sex work, right? It's about yeah. the ways that this author, Chanel Gallant, is able to tie together capitalist superstructures, yes. cisgendered, you know, traditional gender role types of things and this idea that like why why is it possible that in particular women are always required even when it's not actually sex are always required to do sexualized work but they're not allowed to ask for any sort of compensation for it and you know, this quote on page 183 about, you know, how about instead of demanding, how about instead of ending the demand for sex work, 
we end the demand for profit. Yes. Right? Because like she, she says this whole thing about like, yes. to men also, right? She says this thing about essentially we're all sex workers because we're all selling our bodies anyway, right? When you go to your corporation or you go to your university or you do whatever it is that you're doing in the capitalist superstructure, you're actually selling your body. So why don't we just say that sex is something people need? Yes. And if people want to do that work, they should yes. be able to do the work. Safely. Safely and, and controlled with protection and with protection and, and all kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's, it, the, it really is just, it, it's so great because even that section where she talks about, you know, she talks about, you brought up the idea of like being a whore and there's this line where she, and I had never thought about this before. This is on page 182. You know, but she says, we use the term whore to refer to the feminine sin of demanding too much. Yeah. Attention whore, fame whore, money whore. Yes. A whore commits the sin of wanting, whether it's money, sex, or attention. So it's a, it was a sort of Achmedian moment where like, you know, oh yeah, we really do use that language. Yes. And you think about when you've said it. Stop being an attention whore. Hmm. And then you, so now you have to think like, well, to your point, we've been socialized into that, but we've never been forced to think about it. It's there. Hmm. I just think it's like, a, it's a great essay. It's really, it's, it is. It's so good. It is so so good. Like I want everyone I know to read this essay. Yes. And tell me, tell like I think what did she say? Um something else. And you know, another quote from that chapter that I picked up is I don't know if I can find it, but it was something along the lines of tell me your concerns about sex work and I'll tell you your worries about your own sex and your own work. I was like, hmm, I'd like to, you know, I'm going to spend some time looking at that, doing some journaling on that. Yeah, because it's really about our own insecurities, about the ways that we even sell or arrive in our own body, right? Yes. Yeah, the other quote in that chapter that I highlighted that I just think is so great because she ties it back to money and this idea that like, you know, women in particular should be able to demand money for things that they normally don't get to demand money for. And it goes into all of the stuff about gendered roles in the household, the way that work gets performed. I mean, that's not explicitly what the chapter's about, but it really is about like, there is a form of sexualized labor that goes on that women for tens of thousands of years have not been asked to receive any payment for and to even bring up the idea that they would receive payment is just astounding for people it it feels you know like the the crumbling of the foundations of society but i just love the way that it it gets sort of snarky because she frames it in capitalist structures 
And she brings it back to pleasure. The the quote is on page 187 where she says, you know what feels amazing? Surviving capitalism. Yeah. And I thought, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. When you end the month with more than $1.25 in your checking account, you feel pretty damn good about stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just thought, wow, it's so true. Yeah. Pleasurable to survive capitalism. And, you know, maybe sex has something to do with that. And then like the other chapter is that chapter about drug use. And I, I just thought that, for me, that chapter really humanized an issue that I think we don't really like talking about too much in our society. Um, you know, in particular types of ways because of the stigmatization around drug use. It, it, you know, both of those chapters have to do with stigma, right? Hmm. The idea that like sex workers are stigmatized because we think of them as somehow. I don't know, diseased or, you know, we've, we've just put all kinds of words and myths on top of them. Same with drug addicts, you know, and there's, the, there's all these questions for readers who might want to think about this. There's these questions that come up around page, I think it's maybe 247, about why do people use drugs? Mm, yes. And they're called what if questions. Yeah. What if someone is using as an attempt to mitigate the stress and impact of previous or concomitant trauma and mental health issues? What if someone comes from a community of people who use and then, and thus drug use is a cultural norm? What if drug use is part of spiritual practice? What if drug use is a way to tap into inner creative selves? What if a person uses drugs because they get pleasure? What if a person what if people who use drugs are people first? People who are more than the sum total of their drug use. Yeah. What for me, what ties these two chapters together, which was certainly incredibly prevalent where I grew up in the United States, and I'm guessing in your neighborhood too. Kansas City. I grew up in Kansas City, yeah. And yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee. Milwaukee mm-hmm. is purity culture. And I know that there's, and for me, that's what connects these two chapters really clearly is this notion of purity. Mm-hmm. And, and how, and, and how religious institutions indoctrinate people with this notion of purity and the ways that and that you want to be pure and stay pure and there are certain ways to become unpure and sex and drugs are probably the main headlines for how to be unpure or impure is probably the word i'm really looking for but um And, and because it's all tied to morality, hmm. right? And so again, like, I think that's true. I, 
a purity culture. Hmm. Yeah. I think that also has to deal with the body, right? Yeah. Because not only is sex itself sort of taught to us <laughs> again. Oh yeah, I like I was raised Catholic. I mean, you can imagine if you know anything about being raised Catholic, the way that you, you are taught to like feel like your body itself is, well, in fact, that it's is the biblical, it, it, yeah. is, it yeah. is a sin, right? Like the yeah. body is the original sin. Yeah. And so you are indoctrinated in this idea that you cannot in any way be in touch with your body. It's only through the body, ironically, of another person that you will find salvation, but you can't have any pleasure with that person, right? It's all about damnation, fire, hell, brimstone, you know, denying yourself. Or they might have pleasure with young bodies and have that covered up by the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a big part of it too, is purity culture. I, I agree with that. And so like even, oh, that's what I wanted to say was like even the idea of pleasuring the body. It's like you don't even have to have sex. You can just masturbate and you are, you, you are sinning in the worst yeah. possible way and will be condemned to a life of fire, brimstone, and hell because you masturbated. Yeah. It's really wild. Like, whoa. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Does that help you? Does that help you for me, though? When I, you know. You know, where, you know, where I grew up, they, there, were the, there were these organizations called Young Life, which were not Catholic, but mm -hmm. various Protestant. Denominations, yeah. Denominations that would recruit um, young college university students to do these sing-along nights in, in, you know, somebody's house at the high school and, um, and then give a little sermon and then re recruit as many people as possible to go to these relatively expensive summer camps. And I remember watching some of my friends come home from these summer camps just wracked with guilt and shame about their bodies mm -hmm. and about also their sexuality and their own understanding of their sexuality as teenagers. I don't know where I was going with that, but it's, I mean, I guess what I was saying is when I look at it, when I look at the, the role of religion and shaping my sense of my own body and my understanding of sex and sexuality, I, it creates space for some self-compassion. Mm, how? Say, say more about that. Because I just think if you are, if, the, if the, the stories that you grow up hearing tell you that human bodies are inherently sinful, how could we come into adulthood with a you know full embodiment and delight in and respect for 
our own pleasure. How could we feel that our queerness was okay? How could we feel that our, that our desire without wanting necessarily some sort of relationship that fits heteronormative ideals? How, how could that be, possibly be okay? Or, or another thing like that neither of us can speak to, but that the book speaks to is how can black bodies themselves or bodies of color, non-white yeah. bodies. Yeah. You know, because this book is essentially a black feminist manifesto about the body. And yeah, I mean, how... So, but you said it brings you self-compassion. Hmm. How, do you, how do you feel like... I guess I really have two questions if you have time. Hmm. I, I'm really interested in... First of all, I don't feel like religion really comes up in the book that much. This is like a a, a point of departure mm. that we've come to yes. after talking about this book for two hours. Yeah. Why do you think that that come? Why do you think it doesn't come up in the book? And how do you think about the fact that you can start to think about these multiple layers that the book forces you to address? everything mm. from capitalist structures to traditional gender roles to the church to all the other stuff that we've talked about, how does that help you leave the book with a sense of compassion for yourself? Can you repeat your question? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let, let's take them one at a time. Okay. Let's start with the latter one. So you said self-compassion. Like yeah. thinking about the church, thinking about the way that if you're raised to believe that your body is a sin, that gives you a form of compassion, self-compassion. Yeah. How are you thinking about that? Com self-compassion is an interesting concept to me. Okay. So um, I guess what I'm saying is I can see the innocence of taking on those understandings, those ideologies. When I imagine mm -hmm. my much younger self in Sunday school with my eyes wide open to the world, just sucking it all in, I can see the innocence of, of adopting self-hatred and I wonder if being able to connect with the innocence of our own process of adopting self-hatred and hatred of others or fear of others or supposed others no. I wonder if to be able to see the innocence of our youthful selves soaking that in before we had, you know, the benefit of a prefrontal cortex to like think about the world. When we're just absorbing it. Somehow I think seeing, yeah, I know I'm repeating myself again and again, but I can really connect with the innocence of that. 
And I guess seeing the innocence helps me feel that while I'm responsible to addressing the ways in which I embody unjust social hierarchies, oppressive social hierarchies, that if I can connect with the innocence of my own socialization, I can take responsibility without getting too disgusted by my own culpability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which might be a form of healing. Yeah. What do you think? Can you answer your, your own question? Now I have to remember my own question. (laughs) (laughs) No, my question, the question was about like, how does, how does knowing all of that lead to a form of self-compassion? Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about, and I don't have it readily available. I wish that I did. I wish it was like within arm's distance or something, but I'm trying to think about even what the word compassion means. And, mm. and particularly, like, I think there's a book by Thich Nhat Hanh where he talks about the compassion itself or something. Um, but it's just too fuzzy in my brain to think about, like, what, what does compassion actually mean? How does it play out? And how is it different than, like, maybe a word like empathy or self-empathy or something like that, you know, like these words are very, they're really complicated. They're, they have like all kinds of baggage tied up with them in and of themselves. Mm. I think though, but what I think I was really focusing on was I think it's important to be compassionate with ourselves as we try to go through a process of unlearning the things that we were socialized into. But I, I don't think that we should use that compassion as a form of like feeling sorry for ourselves or absolving the systems that were in place from having to take responsibility for the trauma they caused, right? Like, I yeah, don't absolutely. think it's- And I can see the danger of that. Absolutely. Of going, oh, well, if I can, you know- yeah, absolutely. That there ha- it has to be followed by responsible agency, and res- and in know. some cases dismantling. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. like you know, I've been well. Just to go on another side tangent here is like I've been writing this essay that I'm going to hopefully send out at some point in this summer about the way that James Baldwin talked specifically to white people and about racism. And he has this speech that I use in that paper where he is, he is addressing the World Council of Churches, okay? And so, like, try to imagine it's 19, I think it's 1965, 1964, 1965, James Baldwin, black, queer, you know, in the World Council of Churches, probably the whitest space that you can possibly imagine, Right. And he and he makes this statement about saying something to the church leaders about if you do not take 
ownership and responsibility for what you did to black people in terms of supporting the slave trade. If you do not take responsibility for what's going on right now in your support of the US government bombing people in Asia, yeah. right? The Vietnam War and stuff. The, and, and what he says is that really the only way to do that, which is quite bold, I think. <laughs> this is why James Baldwin right here, one of my heroes, yes, you know? Yeah. Uh, he says, actually, the only way to do that is to completely dissolve the Christian church. Like it needs to be abolished because you can't actually absolve yourself of that sin, right? And so it makes me think about this idea of like, to what extent do we have to, like we can have compassion and we can understand what happened and we can even have empathy but at some point, like the power structure itself has to be taken down because there's, yes. you know, but I don't know. It's just like something that I was thinking about because it all connects rhizomatically, so to speak. Yes. Why do you think they don't talk about religion in the book very much? I don't know that I have, I can make a reasonable guess about that. Yeah. I have sort of a, a memory of, of a mention of growing up going to church but really maybe only just a whisper right in the entire text yeah um something to think about i don't know i i wonder i mean i wonder if it's because with child sexual abuse being so rife in so many religious institutions could, could you really have an honest dialogue in your book about pleasure activism and talk about, you know, like, I don't know. I'm not sure if the reality of child sexual abuse, which is prevalent, is so traumatic. I don't know. Could you talk about religion and pleasure without talking about that? And then could you, these are just questions that are coming up right now. Like, could you hold that in this book too? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just, when you brought up moral purity or when you brought up, you know, the, the idea of purity and the, the, the church, it just struck me that I didn't really read a lot about religion in the text. So mm. it doesn't mean anything. It's just, yeah. it's another way that things happen. So I really want to be respectful of time. Okay. I've been talking I mean, to you for two hours. I can talk to you I, for three. Well, uh, I think, I mean, I can keep talking to you. I feel, I guess it's funny. I, do you feel like you have enough for your, okay. Because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the, the, the whole idea here is not so much about, it's just to talk, right? Like this is a yeah. book, this is a book that brings us to many, um, what would you call them? Well, offshoots, divergence points, right? It's not, it's not a linear book. It's a book of yeah. essays. It's a, it's, um, some are from the author. Some are from contributors. There's interviews in the book. It, it's really wide ranging. I, I thought it was an excellent, just a beautiful and excellent text that made me mm -hmm. think about so many things that we've talked about here. Were there any other topics that you really thought 
oh, this, this struck me as like something I, I really want to discuss. Excuse me while I just look at my notes. Yeah, take, take, take your time. I, I just want to acknowledge that Adrian Marie Brown, you know, at the, on the cover, it says written and gathered by Adrian Marie Brown. And for me, it's important to acknowledge how the form of the book, mm -hmm. for me, I felt invited to be woven in amongst the narratives. And that, so that reading the book in and of itself was a an extremely pleasure, pleasureful and sensual experience. It was like being woven in to this collective body. And so I just, I want to express my gratitude. I mean, I guess I really just want to express my gratitude to all of the people who are living their lives and this, these profoundly radical, beautiful, accountable, daring ways and sharing them with us. And it feels really important to me to say thank yeah. you. That's beautiful. I really love it. I think like my closing thought about the book would be that, well, really two things. One is that I don't necessarily want to talk about it. I just want to acknowledge that um, one thing that I think the book actually does, which is really important, is that it challenges some hegemonic thinking around what Black feminist thought is, as well mm -hmm. as the way that queerness gets taken up in those spaces. Um, and so while it is an homage to black feminist thought, as I understand it, right, in the ways that I can understand it from an intellectual and cognitive level, and I've yes. read a lot of that, yes. there's, a, there's also a way the book is challenging that by trying to queer the space and trans the yeah. space and do a lot of other things. So I think that's really important. Um, and then to your point about this is just like there's a, there's a quote that I really want to make sure I include in the podcast. So I'm going to you know, put it here. And it, it speaks yes. to what you said about the way that the people that are contributors and Adrienne Marie Brown herself are really doing this. It's on page 258. And I think it's kind of this idea of like interrupt, interrupting this idea of despair with hope. Yes. Um, so the quote on page 258 is, we are all responsible to find a way a moment, an opening, or a set of relationships that allow us to grow as interrupters of despair. Yes. And I think that what she's really saying is pleasure is the way to do that. Yes. Yes. So I mean- I feel like, sorry, I have here's another idea. So Adrienne Marie Brown sometimes puts pleasure reports on her Instagram feed. Oh, does she? And so I'm wondering 
if it would be fun for us to share pleasure reports from our lives. For example, on, like do you want to play? The, the, yeah, tell me. I don't know because I haven't seen them, so you'll have to tell me how she does them. So just reports about pleasure. So testimony. So she like speaks them, she puts them on her story or she puts a post up or what does she do? Um, combination, I think. Mm -hmm. If I'm, you know, I don't want to misrepresent, but combination. So sometimes it might be a photograph and a list of things. Okay. Sometimes it might be a video okay. or a story. Yeah. 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 Um, or maybe not. Maybe it's not the right suggestion. Maybe finishing with a quote about finding openings. No, <laughs> I mean, do you, do you have a pleasure report for me? Well, I had a, I had one. <laughs> I had one that. So, I, during um, COVID nineteen, mm -hmm. being at home, I let my leg hair grow out completely for the first time since I started shaving my legs when I was eleven. And one day I was sitting at, which for me, that's been a really interesting thing to notice. I've been noticing lots of things about that and about how disciplined I've been in keeping my legs relatively hairless for 30 years, almost. But I was sitting outside and I felt the breeze blow through my leg hair. And it was a sensation that I had never experienced before. And it was amazing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all of this sensation of the breeze blowing through my long leg hair right now. And in that moment, I had this just recognition of pleasure activism that I wanted to share with you. <laughs> I love that. That's, I'm going to include it in the show because okay. in the edited show, because I think that that's, that's what I'm saying is like, it's hard to think about examples of when we're actually doing that. I mean, this is like a really, I guess, to participate. I've got lots of things that I find very pleasurable right now. <laughs> um, but the, the the one that I can think of right off the top of my head just happened this morning, which is um, I finally was able to get the shower head changed on the shower. Um, and it really wasn't even me. It was Derek, my partner. Um, so he finally got like the old shower head off in the apartment and he put on this like power wash shower head that I love, you know, and like I haven't used in years because it's just, I'm always afraid of breaking the pipe and flooding and just whatever. So to get in the shower this morning and to feel this, like the force of the water from that shower head pouring over you. I love, I love the sensation of water going over you. And one thing that I feel really sad about this summer is that there's there's no swimming you know like i won't go mm. and, but i love swimming like i love the sensation of like going into a cool pool letting the water just envelop you right 
So I find I, I find that that shower this morning was very pleasurable, and I, I'll probably take another shower later today just so that I can be under the shower. Yes. You know? Yes. I don't know if that's a pleasure. Yes. Thing, but. Well, and yeah, yes. It's so good. So, um, do you have anything else you want to say before I stop the recording? Then we can just chitty chat. Thank you. Thank you. And this book is just going to continue moving me forever. I agree. I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful book. I really hope that people will listen to it and, or not listen to it. Well, maybe there's an audio version. I don't know. I hope people I will know. read it and, uh, and just think about the complexity of what she's saying. And mm. I, I really, I thank you for being the first person to be part of this new exciting project which is just so amazing it is such an honor such an honor and i am so excited to hear all of the other conversations you have as well i can't wait i can't wait to share them with you and and to, i can't wait to see how this book connects with other books that will come in the future which we don't know yet and i also can't wait to see which person I get to connect with that you've suggested to me. It's going to be really exciting. I am really excited to discover that also. <laughs> Meet these people from your life. So that's really great. Yes. So thank you uh, for your generosity. I'm going to stop the recording here. <laughs>